Hey everyone, Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the 53rd episode of The Writ Podcast. The United Conservative Party of Alberta is at a crossroads. After Jason Kenney's decision to resign as leader earlier this year, the party's looking for his replacement. Seven candidates are in the running, but can the party that came out of the merger of the old Wild Rose and Progressive Conservative parties stay united? To explain the state of the race for the United Conservative Party leadership and what went down in Wednesday's debate in Medicine Hat, I'm joined this week by Elise von Scheel, politics reporter with the CBC in Calgary. Hey, Elise, how are you doing? Hey, good. Thanks for having me back. So you went to the debate in Medicine Hat and you made the uh, trek back to Calgary. So you've been uh, crisscrossing the province. Um, how was just before we I, we'll, we'll get it more into detail about the debate itself. But uh, how has it been covering this race so far with this being the first kind of big event? It was interesting because I think everybody had kind of had all these expectations about what it might be. And we've seen so many developments even just happening online. So I think to have everybody, you know, like other uh, small organizations have done debates. This was the first official party debate that we've seen so far in the race. So I think to have all the candidates on stage together, for me at least to be there and be able to watch uh, body language and watch how they interacted with each other even afterwards. It was uh, it was interesting and had a lot of hints, I think, for how we're going to watch uh, big themes in this race unfold. Well, you mentioned the candidates all being uh, on the stage and they only just had the official you know, slate of candidates come out recently. So there are seven candidates in the running. Some of them would be well known, I think, to anybody who follow politics, even outside of Alberta, but other ones might be a little bit obscure. So maybe just take us through a very quick little bio for each of those seven candidates that are uh, trying to become the next premier. Yeah, I'll give you a line for each. Okay, so there's seven candidates right now. Danielle Smith, uh, who was former opposition leader, leader of the Wild Rose. When she uh, quit politics, she went to go host a talk show. She's now back in politics. Travis Taves, who uh, was finance minister under Kenny. Rebecca Schultz, who was children's services minister under Kenny. Rajan Sani, who was transport and community and social services minister under Kenny. Seeing a theme, there's a lot of uh, of cabinet members. Leela Ahir, who was... Uh, culture and status of women minister until she was kicked out of cabinet about a year ago. Uh, Todd Lowen, who is uh, just a, a caucus member or was, he got booted out after some controversy with another uh, colleague of his, Drew Barnes, a little while ago. And then another name that might be familiar to some Alberta politics watchers, which is uh, former Wild Rose leader as well, uh, Brian Jean, who just recently came back to the UCP fold and is uh, sitting MLA right now. What I was looking at the candidates and sort of their track record. Uh, there's a lot from the Wild Rose parties, as you mentioned, Daniel Smith, Brian Jean, and a few of the other ones, um, you know, were involved with the Wild Rose party before they merged with the UCP. And then the other candidates are either they were first elected in 2019. So they don't at least have an official kind of backing with the progressive conservatives. So when you see this field of candidates, is it a division between the old Wild Rose and PC parties? Or is it a little bit more complicated than that? I think it's for sure more complicated than that. Um, and you have to keep in mind the UCP is a bit of a baby party, right? It was it came together in 2017 of these mergers uh, of the PCs and of the Wild Rose. So there are definitely some splits along that line. But the interesting theme that's also kind of emerging in this leadership race and some of what we saw in the leadership review for Premier Kenny is an urban-rural split that uh, you have more urban candidates who would have been in cabinet with Kenny, uh, and then those who may have been a little bit more anti-restriction, who might have been located more often in, in the rural areas. So we are seeing kind of the, the old guard split between the PCs and the Wild Rose, but it's just as much a geographical split, just as much as it, it is a, a deeper ideological split, rather than just being along political lines, being along actual um, 
like philosophical and moral lines, like some of the splits that we saw occurring during COVID, which um, was a, an issue everywhere. But in Alberta, like that, that sentiment that either uh, pro shutdown, pro COVID blocking measures versus the, the crowd that wanted some, some freedom and some more autonomy during that time, like those divisions were basically a driving theme in the province for the last two years in a way that was, I think, a little bit more extreme than in a lot of other places in the country. So then, you know, it's not just about trying to get all the Wild Rose supporters uh, behind you, all the former PC members. So if you had to sort of divide up the seven candidates uh, in terms of who they're trying to appeal to, um, you know, what, how does that work out? What, what does the field look like in terms of the, the path to victory for groups of candidates who are trying to, you know, group members together and get them to be ranked second, third on the, on that ranked ballot? My analysis of that has actually shifted, uh, in the last couple of days, and especially since the debate, I a lot of us were talking and the people that we were talking to in the party and who were working on these camps would have, I guess, a couple of weeks ago seen it as uh, Todd Lowen, Brian Jean, Danielle Smith going after one group, and then uh, Kenny's old cabinet essentially going after a, a, another group of voters. Um, but it's starting to, to change a little bit. And in the debate last night, it was funny because we had some moments where uh, Brian Jean was appealing to some of Travis Taves supporters and, and kind of saying, OK, if Travis is your first, make me your second and and vice versa. And another theme that came up during the debate was really a, a bit of a pile on 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 Danielle Smith. Um, and, and so from that, really, you, you can tell by the amount of oxygen that was spent on uh, trying to to tear her down by the other candidates that she's really perceived by them as well uh, as the front runner. And so. The trickle off of that is that everybody else seems to be wanting to get the the other support that's available. And so th the problem being is that they're all kind of competing for the same second place uh, ranking on other people's ballots, with the exception of Todd Lowen, who uh, had not one bad thing to say about Danielle Smith and presumably just based on... Um, on their bases and their kind of uh, political leanings, they they probably appeal to the same crowd. But the other five candidates are are kind of cannibalizing each other for the rest of the province. I know there, you know, it's it's hard to poll a, a leadership race, but there was a poll that was done just uh, I don't know the last week or so, and you know it had uh, Daniel Smith and uh, Brian Jean leading the race. Uh, uh, Taves was in third. But when it was the second choices, you can see that there was a lot of overlap between the Gene and the Smith voters. So I can imagine that for Gene, he doesn't want to be the, you know, the he doesn't want to be the one who gives the leader, the, the win to Daniel Smith. He wants to get maybe perhaps some of that Tra uh, Travis Taves vote, because if it is those three on that on that second to last ballot, what happens with the Taves vote is probably going to end up deciding it if it's going to be Daniel Smith or Brian Gene, if it is that way that it runs out. Yeah, I, I find it hard to believe that if Taves is to pull this out, um, that he would be able to do it on anything less than like a fifth or sixth ballot. Like we're we're getting way down the the order. Um, if that's the way. I was talking to to somebody who's on the the party election leadership committee today, um, who was essentially saying that if it's gonna be a first ballot, it's for sure Danielle Smith. If it's a second or third, it's also probably looking like Danielle Smith. But but the interesting thing being is that if she slowly bleeds support and other people say, OK, well, Danielle's probably going to win. So I can put Todd first or I can put Brian first, knowing that when they drop off, the second choices will go to to Danielle. Um, and, and then, yeah, the, the, the trick being that if that is what ends up happening, that then there's a little bit more of a path for for Taves to uh, to pick up 
maybe some earlier support, but um, honestly, the the people that I'm talking to in the party right now, like there, there is a clear and established front runner. Um, nobody seems to be disputing that even from the other leadership camps, even though they might begrudge needing to, uh, to admit that. Um, and you know, there's two, what are we, two months left. Uh, it's not a lot of time in, uh, in Alberta politics, especially when you've got the membership cutoff coming up on August 12th. To put it into some context, so you have you know the conservative leadership race happening federally. Pretty much everybody agrees that Pierre Poilievre is the front runner and by a lot, and that he could actually win on the first ballot. Are people talking about Daniel Smith in the same way, or is it a little bit more of a she's the front runner, but it's it's an open question whether she actually wins? Uh, it's it's a bit of a mix of both. I think there's an understanding that unless something drastic happens, um, she's probably at some point on the ballot going to to win. Uh, but it's it's less of a, a wide margin than I think it is at the CPC level. I think um, the second and third place candidates are probably a, a lot closer to Smith than I would say Jean Charest might be uh, with Pierre Polyev. Like we were talking to some of the leadership camps after the debate and a little bit this morning, uh, and they were saying that the second place candidate right now with their internal polling appears to be Travis Taves. Uh, and mm. it appears that he's about five points behind Smith. So it's, it's not double digits. It's not a hopeless race, but at the same time, like Smith's big challenges actually seem to be self-inflicted so far. Her, uh, her comments on uh, cancer being preventable and controllable by patients up to stage four, um, and a lot of the flack that she's taken for her Sovereignty Act proposal, which would basically say that Alberta could just decide not to enact federal legislation it didn't like um, and all the constitutional challenges that go along with that. Nobody's really landing any blows so far on her. It's It all seems to be things that she stumbling blocks she's putting in her own way. Um, so I'll be interested to see how that plays out over the next couple of weeks or to see if some of, of the other camps will manage to land something that demonstrably changes the level of support she has right now. Well, let's talk about the debate um, in Medicine Hat. So as you said, it was pretty clear that the other candidates were identifying a front runner in Danielle Smith because she was the one coming under attack for a lot of the things that you just said. So how did that kind of dynamic play out on the debate stage? Uh, it, it was a, a large theme, really, like a, a lot of the uh, accountability debating or the accountability questioning that was was coming along was targeting Smith for for exactly these things that we we had talked about. So they had five themes. Um, healthcare was one of them. Energy was one of them. Leadership and things like that. And when the healthcare came one came up, the question went to Rajan Sani. So she answered it, and then because of the format, she was allowed to pick somebody to debate. And she said she wanted to debate Daniel Smith on healthcare, and like the room went oh. <sighs> <laughs> like you, you audibly, you could hear that they were getting ready to listen to uh, to what was going to go down. And before even really jumping into the debate, Smith off the top said, look, I, I need to address these comments that I made about cancer treatment. Uh, and she she basically said that her comments were misunderstood. And she explained, you know, she has a, a mother-in-law who had received a really difficult cancer diagnosis. And all she was trying to say, she said, was that uh, early detection is key and that there are uh, you should explore other options as well to help with these difficult medical diagnoses, um, which the other candidates really didn't buy. And it became a bit of, of a pile on there, you know, saying 
Smith should apologize. She should be more explicit about what she takes back and all of this. And then it kind of escalated because Smith then chirped back and said, well, you know, those of you who are in cabinet with Kenny really should apologize for imposing public health restrictions on people during COVID. And the crowd just like went berserk. Um, so it, it was really interesting to see how some of these tensions along ideological lines, along uh, even topical lines, there wasn't actually a lot of COVID discussion beyond Smith's one little quip there. Um, so she had to address that. The, the other big theme of the debate was this Sovereignty Act thing, right? Like, how is Alberta going to stick it to Ottawa? And while the other candidates disagreed and basically said, no, we can't disregard the Constitution, uh, we need to find a better way to advocate for Alberta on a national stage. Uh, and then Smith would just come back with saying, see, they agree with the basis of, of what I'm saying. So it was really interesting because she had clearly prepared that this was going to be a thing that came up. She's also an incredibly experienced communicator uh, and has been on debate stages before and Brian Jean really being the only other one who would have been. So her, uh, her communications command definitely came through. Uh, Taves also performed well because I, I think people see him as quite subdued. And so he was able to kind of you know, throw a couple punches and, and things like that. So the two of them definitely had like 95% of the attention the entire debate. If a lot of the debate was about uh, Daniel Smith's um, comments on cancer and on uh, the uh, Sovereignty Act uh, that she's proposing, it sounds like she's debate, uh, she's dominating the discussion. Uh, you know, were, were any of the other candidates able to get something into the debate, get something in front of members, people who are watching, that wasn't about Daniel Smith. They were. Was it memorable, I think, is the other question, right? Like, you're sitting in front of a, a crowd of people talking for two hours. It's a lot of information to take in. I was taking, like, by-the-minute notes and tweeting, and I'm sure I still missed stuff. So, it, like, really, I think the the breakthrough or the surprise moment was Rajan Sani deciding that her tactic for the night was going to be attacking Danielle Smith. In her opening statement, she went at Smith right away. The next question, she said, you know, it takes more to be premier than being a talk show host. Uh, and so that was one tactic for differentiation, because really, a lot of the other candidates have very, very similar um, bases for their platforms on healthcare, uh, on the economy on energy and things like that. So the differentiation um, became a little bit difficult. I'll be interested to see if the debate moves anything personally, like I've, I've watched a lot of debates and I've spent a lot of time around these candidates. It seemed like a pretty standard, uh, standard event to me. There wasn't much about the debate that really shocked me. And in talking to people in the party afterwards, it seemed to be kind of a, a an expectation meeting event and not exceeding or, or uh, falling way short of those expectations. You mentioned it a little bit already, uh, Brian Jean, you know, seemingly wanting to go after Taves's vote. Did you see any other kind of, a, uh, you know, alliances or the candidates trying to, you know, get on the good pages of, you know, another candidate's supporters? You know, if you think about the, the conservative leadership race we saw with Patrick Brown jumping to Jean Charest's defense uh, when in that debate where they were together. Was there anything like that that you saw that uh, maybe revealed some of the strategy of, for, for some of the candidates? It was actually a really interesting kind of side note of the debate was this undercurrent of unity. 
like with the exception of attacking Daniel Smith, everybody else would say, oh, I don't agree with that candidate, but I really like you. You're a really good person. I think you have really good ideas. Um, and so it was a weird debate in the sense that everybody is completely and painfully aware of the thin ice that the unity of this party is sitting on right now. Um, and so even like two or three of the candidates said, you know, I would make a really good leader and these other six people will make great cabinet ministers in my government. And that seemed to be like one of the cliche lines of the night um, was like, thanks to my colleague for that. And I'm just going to add to it. And a, a couple of uh, of journalists around me were like, this is this is a debate. Are they not going to debate? <laughs> so it um, it was an interesting element of that to see, because while they are all going after the same support there there is also an understanding that like you wake up on October 7th and you're somebody's the leader and the premier but you're all mostly still in government um all the ones who are uh, elected MLAs which i think is basically all of them except for smith so like you're you're all sitting in government together you still got a province to run a lot of them might have nominations still on the table um and like everything's fractured, right? And so there was a very, very careful line walking of appealing uh, to voters as first or second choices, depending on which which candidate was talking. And also um, this almost weird like holding of punches uh, where it seemed like the most important thing for a couple of, of the candidates, at least in their approaches, was uh, see if you can score any points on Smith. Uh, see if you can score any points on Taves, depending on who was talking. Uh, and three, like, don't muck this up for the rest of the party. <laughs> that is a bit of a contrast from the, what we're seeing at the federal race. So do you feel like there's less of a chance in this one that it, there will be something that comes out of the leadership contest that is divisive for the party? Like, is this party going to uh, be able to stick together after this uh, leadership race, regardless of who wins? That's that's kind of the question. And it's one we put to the candidates. Uh, and Rajan Sani told us she she thinks people will leave caucus if Danielle Smith wins. Mm. Uh, Todd Lowen, who is out of caucus, um, he's like, hey, I can't believe I'm running for leader and I'm not back in caucus at this point. Uh, and he also said he thought that the party could survive. So it, de it depends on who you ask. There are definitely uh, in some of the conversations that we've had with MLAs, people who are uh, UCP MLAs who are pretty upset in the wake of uh, Kenny deciding that he's going to step down, prompting this leadership race, who um, are upset enough by what Smith is proposing that if she won, there would be some serious conversations about what a, a chunk of those MLAs would do. The thing is, though, is like we saw that a lot um, when people were upset with Kenny in caucus. And nobody really left. Uh, nobody left of their own accord. Two got kicked out, but no, but nobody stood up and said, I'm done here and walked away. So we've heard lots of threats like this before, albeit from maybe a different side of caucus. Uh, but I, I'm not sure what that turns into. The other interesting thing when you talk about does the party stay together um, is that that unity piece was a big part of the debate. And it was also a big part of the discussions uh, that the candidates were kind of having in the media scrums afterwards, uh, as well as in the one-on-one -on -one debates on the stage, especially between Brian Jean and uh, and Travis Taves. Taves kind of said to, to Brian Jean, like, you know, you talked about knifing our leader in the front and you're the guy who's going to come back and talk about uh, being unified. 
And Jean came back and said, unity doesn't just mean caucus. Unity means, you know, a cohesion within the conservative movement. But then, of course, you get into the difficulties of how do you govern if your caucus isn't on side, right? Like, that's what Kenny has been grappling with for a while. The membership talks to the MLAs, the MLAs talk to each other and back to the membership and up to the to cabinet and the premier. So, um, like, they're really struggling with this issue of what unity looks like afterwards. Taves uh, was telling an event today down uh, in Brooks, just about an hour away from Medicine Hat, that he wants to develop a code of conduct with caucus. So they together, if he wins, would figure out what's acceptable behavior within the UCP caucus and what's not. And there would be posted rules and violation of those posted rules would result in getting ousted from caucus, like pretty cut and dry like that. So it's it seems like insider baseball, maybe for a lot of people who are watching this going like it's a caucus, like how hard can it be? But this is it, it will be the defining issue in a lot of ways for whoever wins in October. Uh, it won't just be bringing Albertans on side with whatever messaging and whatever platform they want to take into the 2023 election. It will also be about uh, staving off any kind of further implosion of of the party. Because they don't have much time, right? You mentioned 2023. Uh, the election is really going to be, what, six months after this race is over? So uh, that's not a huge amount of time that they'll have in the legislature uh, to try to keep things together. Not a lot of time either for people to try to start a new party either. So um, it, they, they will be on in a little bit of a pressure cooker because the NDP, uh, based on the latest poll, is still leading. Yeah, and the NDP is, is kind of waiting to see... Uh, exactly what tactics they can employ when it comes to this uh, this election and whoever the new leader becomes. Even today, like they sent out an email, they're having their annual general meeting, their convention, uh, the exact same weekend as the UCP is this fall. And that's the UCP has had their date out for a while. Like it's it's not a coincidence. This is the NDP already starting to want that juxtaposition uh, like geographically, timing wise, and also like media coverage, communications wise, they want it right up against the, whatever the UCP is putting out. So it'll, it, it's starting already. And and like you said, we it's so hard to pull uh, against a hypothetical premier. Like the uh-huh. the most popular premier is the one that doesn't exist. <laughs> um, and and so. It'll be interesting to see how the NDP reacts once there is some uh, concrete polling, once a UCP leader has been in place for a while. Uh, And like the NDP has their tactic for the last little while has been just kind of letting the UCP eat itself. Mm -hmm. Um, The NDP really hasn't had to do much work creating issues within the UCP. Um, And if a new UCP leader is able to unify the caucus and the membership a little bit more, the opposition might have to pivot a little bit. So I'll be interested to see if they pivot what they pivot to. You know, this race is happening in part because people thought that Jason Kenney was probably going to lose the next election. So they needed someone who had a better shot of defeating the NDP. Uh, do people within the party feel confident that that was a good decision? That Because if they end up with someone like Daniel Smith or Brian Jean uh, from the Wild Rose wing, Probably an easier uh, target for the NDP to get centrist voters on side. Uh, it, it feels like this leadership race is not going to end up with the party much further ahead than they would have been under Jason Kenney. I don't really hear anybody talking about Jason Kenney right now anymore, uh, frankly. And so I, I don't know how much um, backward looking or revisionist history they are they're trying to employ here, because I, I think like the present uh, stakes are so in everybody's faces right now. 
Um, but it's funny. I was driving back with a colleague of mine and we were listening to the Hamilton soundtrack in the car and the King George soundtrack where he talks about you'll be back came on and we kind of looked at each other. We said, like, do you wonder if Kenny is sitting somewhere thinking, you see what you're left with when I'm gone? <laughs> um, so it, it'll be an interesting um it's an interesting time in the province. It's an interesting time in the party. And there is so much going on in like ahead of the vehicle right now that we are sitting in as Alberta, that not many people are looking behind us. And even that came out at the debate, right? There wasn't a lot of talk about COVID. There wasn't a lot of uh, rehashing the grievances that have been hashed out over the last kind of 24 months. It's all talking about what do we do in October, after October? How do we get set up to beat the NDP? Um, and for the NDP, like they're already working really hard on nominations uh, and training and things like that. Like the the election machine is already has already left the station. Um, and so I don't think anybody is really looking backwards necessarily. Too much to do. Uh, we'll finish on this just uh, because there's been lots of talk about, you know, what, what we're seeing with the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom, uh, with how that leadership race is unfolding, with MPs choosing their candidates, uh, questions about whether, you know, it, it is a useful exercise to have lots of memberships being signed up to run. Um, it, you know, looking at this from the outside, uh, there's a chance that Daniel Smith, who lost the 2012 election, who crossed the floor to join Jim Prentice, and that contributed in part, I suppose, to um, you know the collapse in 2015. You have Brian Jean, who led the Wild Rose Party in 2015, also did not win an election. One of those two people could end up becoming premier in a way through the back door. Is anybody talking about that kind of aspect of this? That this is going to be, this could end up being a rather strange outcome based on what Albertans have done in elections in the past. Yeah, I think two things. Uh, first of all, this person might only be premier for six months. Um, and so, you know, a, a select handful of Albertans will pick the premier in October, and then all of Albertans will have a chance to pick their premier uh, next spring. At the same time, man, we have cycled through so many premiers in Alberta in the last kind of 10, 10 years or so. Uh, so I don't think anybody is really surprised that we are now at, at a point where the membership is going to be selecting the premier, like much stranger things have happened in Alberta politics over the last little while. And so I think because the election is close, uh, because of all of the turmoil, it it honestly, I think, seems like a pretty, pretty standard procedure. But like on on the memberships question, too, um, this race is really going to be decided in rural Alberta based on where memberships have been sold, where candidates are spending their time. Uh, and the UCP membership is like 2% of the province. So yeah, mm -hmm. going back to your point, it, it will be 2% of the population in a very select group of areas of the province um, who are very likely going to be deciding who the next premier is. And we don't have the updated membership lists. Uh, I, if somebody wants to send them to me, I'll take them. Um, okay. <laughs> but uh, but the the highest concentrations of of members are in ridings uh, like in Old Didsbury Three Hills, which is kind of center of the province, a bunch in the south, like um, in Cardston uh, and in Rocky Mountain House, Rimby, Sundry area, uh, all like really strongholds for the for the UCP. But the membership numbers in those ridings as of just before the leadership review like five ridings had something insane, like 80 to 90% of the, the, the membership. Um, so the, 
Yeah, it, it will be those groups of people. And wherever Danielle Smith is selling her memberships and Travis Taves is selling his memberships, those people will be will be picking the premier. And uh, then Albertans, then it pivots, right? Like you, winning the membership is not the same thing as winning the province. And so right now, the messaging, the push, the machinery is going to the members. Uh, and, and there have been some interesting policies and positions and comments made in this race. And so after October 6th, it becomes how how do you pivot from that in a way that can appeal to the the broader voting base of Alberta? And uh, the race so far has shaped up in, in a way that there are some things that are going to be pretty tricky to pivot from. Maybe you don't need to pivot. Maybe November election. <laughs> Stop. Every time. <laughs> You always want the election. Some of us want to break. <laughs> yeah. All right. Fine. All right. Well, you know, it's a really fascinating race. And uh, as you said, it's not over yet. So I really appreciate you coming on and, and giving us the, the lowdown on what happened in Medicine Hat and what's going to happen in the next couple of months in Alberta. Thanks a lot, Elise. Always happy to chat. Thanks again to Elise Von Scheel, politics reporter for the CBC in Calgary. Okay, that'll be it for this week's episode of The Writ Podcast. You can head over to therit.ca to see all the latest from me and to subscribe and support my work if you aren't already a subscriber. I hope everyone has a great long weekend and thanks for listening.